Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. And today, I'm starting a three-part series on essentially the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Roughly the last week. Today I'm focusing on just that. How Jesus spent the last few days before the crucifixion. Next week, I will talk about the crucifixion itself and the importance of it. And the week after that, I'm not sure, I'm considering talking about the resurrection. Of course, I'll be talking about the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. But I want to put a bug in your ear about next Sunday and the following Sunday. Today's message is important, but next two are going to be very evangelistic. So they would be excellent services to invite an unsaved loved one to. Okay? I know Easter is typically more of a pack the house. You might, might be easier to get your uh, typically non-church attending friends or family to come to. Hey, it's Easter. You can come Easter, right? But, uh, and I'm not saying one would be better than the other, but if at all possible, it would be good for your unsaved loved ones or maybe your um, lukewarm loved ones to hear the next two messages. The one next week on the death of Christ and why his death is so important. And of course, the following week on the significance of the resurrection. So there's the commercial for the next two weeks, you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Last week, when David was here, he, uh, instead of just giving a list of scriptures to Matt and the production team, he had some slides that had a particular background, and I think something about the way they were formatted, it didn't work, and Matt had to plug in different, uh, kind of on the fly, uh, and I guess the upshot was the version that was printed on the screen was different from the version that David Husky was reading from, uh, which is not a great big deal. And uh, Matt asked me if I'd noticed it, and I didn't. Do you know why I didn't notice it? Because I bring my Bible to church, and while he's reading the scripture, I'm reading it out of my Bible, which also happened to be a different version. But I always kind of like doing that. It keeps you on your toes. You're hearing it read out of one version, and you're following along in your version. You can see how they gel. Uh, Again, that's just another encouragement to bring your Bibles. These these are up here for your convenience, and sometimes it might be easier to see these, uh, depending on the lighting and uh, print size and everything. But do it's still a very good habit to be familiar with your physical Bible. Anyway, we are in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. And he, Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it, will save it. <coughs> Excuse me. So, this is the first time we see Jesus predicting his death. And what happens? Peter argues with him. No, 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 no. This isn't going to happen to you, Jesus. Don't say that in front of the people. You'll just get them all stirred up. And Jesus, after rebuking Peter, he launches into this teaching on what? Humility, submission, laying down your life, taking up your cross. I want you to keep that in mind and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, beginning in verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, <coughs> and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So, second time Jesus predicts his death, his disciples start wondering among themselves, who would be the greatest? Now, keep in mind, I know this is review for a lot of you, but please, please, please don't check out while I explain this to people who might not be as familiar. What their, their mindset is they had made up their mind, they had decided, they had come to the correct conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. And they are on the inside track. He had 120 followers that went with him pretty much everywhere he went. And then these 12 disciples who were the inner circle. And when they realize this is the Messiah, they're thinking, oh my goodness, here he is. It's happening right in our life. Here we are in the prime of life. And Jesus is getting ready to reveal himself, not just to us, but to all of Israel. And when he does, and when he throws Rome off our back, and he's seated properly on the throne, and he's in power, we're going to be his cabinet, <coughs> his court. And so they can't help but think, who's going to outrank whom? Who's going to sit on his right hand? Who's going to sit on his left? They're getting excited. They can't wait until this happens. So Jesus, as they're walking, explains to them, hey, for the second time, you know what's going to happen, guys? I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be uh, given into the hands of men. They're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. And as they continue to walk, hey, you guys, they start, hey, what were you guys talking about on the road? He knew, and they were embarrassed to say, and he says, if you want to be great, he does the same thing. He predicts his death. They start asking who's the greatest, and what's he do? Goes into another teaching on humility, servanthood, right? Denying yourself. And isn't it weird? I get, I get they had the wrong idea about how Jesus was going to establish his kingdom, Again, this is the second time he talks about his death, and there's no record of any of them saying, wait, what? What, what do you, what, how, how does this play into this thing? You can't, you can't really mean you're going to die, right? But look now at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. 
Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in glory. And I'm sorry, I can't help it. This, This is their reaction? This is the third time he has told them openly that he's going to be killed. He's going to be betrayed. He gets on to some detail this time. Betrayed, arrested, scourged, mocked, spit on, and killed. And that he's going to rise on the third day. And again, their reaction is so tone deaf, especially since there's an immediacy to it this time. He's told them before what's going to happen. He's now, they're literally walking to Jerusalem to begin the last week of his life. He can see it right on the, the, the near horizon. And he's telling them what's going to happen hey, this thing I've already told you about twice, it's getting ready to happen. It's soon. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise on the third day. And James and John are like, yeah, uh, hey, I got an idea. When you're sitting on your throne in power, can I sit on one side of you and and my brother on the other? It it kind of reminds me that, you know, uh, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, did you enjoy the play? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get all that. But how do you think you're going to enjoy Jerusalem this week, Jesus, other than that being scourged and killed and stuff? There's a little back and forth then between Jesus and these two about what they're asking. And then pick it up again in verse 42. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Amazing. Again, he uses this very same conversation to start talking about serving in humility. The statements about his death had gone right over their heads. You know, if you read about this in Luke, it says, like, it's just boom, boom, boom. They did not understand. It was hidden from them. They, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't see what he was talking about. And it said it was hidden from them. It could be Holy Spirit was hiding it from him. More likely, I think... Excuse me, I promise I'm not sick. I've got a, I think I've got a piece of Altoid stuck in my throat. Uh, anyway, uh, Jesus, you know, he spoke in a lot of parables, and some were easier to understand than others. 
And sometimes he left the crowd scratching their heads, and then he would take his disciples and, and say, let me more fully explain this to you guys. They're going to get it someday, but I'm going to explain it to you now. So he said some things that were a little mysterious. Now, three times he said, you know, the Son of Man's going to go. He's going to be delivered up to the Gentiles. They're going to kill him, and he'll rise on the third day. And they're probably thinking, because you've got to understand, he's the Messiah. And they can't get their head around the idea of a Messiah who is serving in humility, let alone suffering. Their Messiah is a military and political victor. And he, Jesus is describing a servant and even a victim. So they just, when he talks about being killed by the Gentiles, they don't know what it means. But it can't mean something like he's going to be killed by the Gentiles. So they're like, oh, wonder what he could mean. But since we're, not, we're clearly not talking life and death, that can wait. He can explain, oh, I get it. When you said you were going to be killed, I whatever. That'll all make sense to us. Meanwhile, let's talk about the important stuff. Who gets to sit on your right and left hand? You see, it seems careless. It seems selfish when they say, when they don't even consider it. But you have to understand, to their credit, they really didn't think, I don't think anyway, I don't think they thought he meant what he said. It, he, they still thought he was speaking in some parabolic uh, mystery that he would explain at a later date. Now, it's also worth mentioning that Jesus knew from the start of his ministry what his purpose was. And, and, and for how long before he started his ministry? I don't know how long he knew uh, exactly how this was going to play out, how he was going to die. <clears throat> you have to understand, yes, Jesus was God in the flesh. This was his identity. This is who he was. Uh, but all of this, at, at, the, at the center of our understanding of Jesus' ministry is that even though I, his identity was God the Son from all eternity, he did not come to earth and minister as God. He came to earth as man filled with the Holy Spirit. All man but the sin, all God but the glory. He laid, yes, God is omniscient. But when it said things like Jesus knowing their thoughts, it wasn't because he had this God-like omniscience of what everybody was thinking. It was because the Holy Spirit told him at certain times what he needed to know to minister most effectively. So, yes, Jesus had the long game in mind. He knew what his purpose was. Him getting arrested in, in Jerusalem did not catch him by surprise. Now, again, knowing what he knew and hearing from God, always everything he needed to hear from God. Uh, he knew certainly at this time as he entered Jerusalem that this was it, that he was marching toward his destiny, God's ultimate purpose for his life. He knows the time is at hand, one week to go, and the things he's going to suffer are literally excruciating. Literally, because that's where the word comes from. Excruciating, out of the cross. And he knows it's coming. Could we understand it? I would be pretty understanding if the next thing we read was that Jesus found a place or instructed his disciples to find a place where he could just sit with them for three or four days and prepare himself for the ordeal he's facing. Spend some time praying. Anything he could do to prepare him for this ordeal. That's not what happened, of course. 
right outside Jericho. And they're heading to Jerusalem. Who do they run into? Blind Bartimaeus. And blind Bartimaeus recognizes him or hears that he's coming. Uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they're like, shut up, shut up, shut up, Bart. And uh, then Jesus says, no, bring him over here. Hey, hey, cheer up, Bart. He's calling for you. So they take him over. What do you want me to do? I want to see. So Jesus heals the guy, gives him his sight, a healing miracle. Then they arrive in Jerusalem. And what happens? The triumphal entry. Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now. I'm not going to preach my Hosanna sermon this year. But there is uh, the, 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 the core of this is the people uh, as, you know, we're not talking the religious leaders in this case, but the people of Jerusalem were excited, and they're ready to receive Jesus as the Messiah, but if you're going to do it, do it now. We're with you. Hosanna, save now. Oh, save. And they lay out the red carpet for him, so to speak, branches and articles of clothing for his path. And then look at this. This is more significant uh, than I realized when I read this uh, recently in Mark 11, verse 11. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he comes into the city, experiences a triumphal entry, goes into the temple, <coughs> and then leaves. He and his disciples go two miles down the road to Bethany to spend the night. The next day is when they're coming back into Jerusalem. He curses the fig tree, and he goes in and he cleanses the temple. Again, this is kind of what I'm building up to. Jesus is facing an almost incredible trial. And I don't mean just the legal trial, of course. I'm talking about this whole ordeal. There was an unbelievable amount of pressure on him. And a crass reading of a couple of these events could make you think he was irritable. Again, why curse a fig tree with no figs on it? Curse a fig tree for having no figs if it wasn't the season for figs. And then goes into the temple, kicks over the tables, kicks out the guys who are selling doves and, ch and exchanging the money. It, doesn't that seem reactionary? But it wasn't. He went into the temple the day before, and what's it say? Looked around at everything. What did he see? He saw the money changers. He saw the people selling doves. He saw the marketplace they had turned God's house into. Then he didn't do a thing. He went back. He had a two-mile walk to Bethany. He had all night and a two-mile walk back to Jerusalem to pray, to think, and to get marching orders from the Father. This wasn't reactionary. He had hours to think about this and consider it. When he went back to the temple, he went back. It wasn't like he walked in and went, oh, I'm shocked, shocked to find money changing going on here. That's a little reference to Casablanca for those of you who are fans. He didn't go in there and, and just, I can't believe what I'm seeing and start kicking things over. He saw it the day before and made up his mind after hearing from God that he was going to go in there and set it right. We talked about the fig tree thing a few weeks ago. This whole thing was a lesson in faith for the disciples. So what else did he do? Yeah, right there he taught the greatest lesson on what faith is and the prayer of faith. 
as he explained the fig tree. He taught the parable of the vineyard and the vine dressers. He sparred with the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, about resurrection and with the scribes uh, about the commandments. He taught in the temple. He drew attention to the widow's two mites and the offering. He taught as he always had. He answered challenges from those in authority as he always had. He healed as he always had. Then he delivers a prophetic message about the end times that is one of the most important end times teaching, uh, teachings in all of Scripture. And then nearer the end, he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. Right before that, look at John chapter 13. John 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Let's skip down to verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The disciples are still at this point, days away from understanding the death of Jesus. It would not make sense to them until Jesus explained it to them after the resurrection. And his focus was still, at this hour, his focus was not, hey guys, guys, listen, I'm about to die. What was his focus? To teach them, this time by perfect example, what it means to lead in the kingdom of God. That the greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. Now, I hope you have a little clearer picture of what Jesus was about during this crucial time. But there's one big takeaway for you and for me that I want to nail down before we wrap this up. And again, as important as this is, this is more or less a prelude for the next two very important sermons, next two Sundays. Again, as I mentioned, Jesus, by this time, the beginning of the week, knew he was in the home stretch. He could see it clearly. It looked toward the end of this week to his disciples and to all of Jerusalem like his ministry was going off the rails. His plan was failing. But in fact, things were going exactly according to God's plan. And Jesus knew it. But the way, listen to this, the way he had lived his life 
and conducted his ministry meant that no radical changes were necessary. He continued, more or less, right up to the moment to minister just as he always had, right up to the moment of his arrest. This is how it ought to be with us. I was listening to a minister recently on the radio, just the other day. He was talking about how a lot of people, when they consider death, you know, a lot of people don't like, to, none of us like to think about death. It's an enemy, right? Uh, he says, a lot of people have said, and I get it, you know, when I go, I want to be hit by a truck. I want to be struck by lightning. I want, I want to go like that. I don't want to linger. I just want to die fast. He says, I don't. He says, I want to see it coming. I want to know I'm dying because I want to be able to prepare people. I want to be able to plan my last words. I want to be able to speak blessings. And this is kind of cool, the, the, the deathbed that not everybody has. I get what he's saying, but that's really not what I'm talking about. Those are detail stuff. I'm also not talking about having your worldly affairs in order, which we certainly should do. If you found out it was your last week, or your last month, your reaction to that news says a lot about how you've lived your life up to that point. Would you have to make some radical changes to be ready spiritually to meet your maker? Would you feel like you've got a week or a month and all you can think about is making up for wasted time? We all... If we love the Lord and we love the church and we love people, we all should have a little bit of, even at the end of our life, oh, if, if I could have another day to do more for the kingdom. If I had another week, oh, that I could, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. There's only one of me. Oh, for if I could just live another lifetime so that I could please God more. That's one thing. It's another thing to say, oh, I wish I had gotten serious about God earlier. Not to pick on any one group, this is something that I think especially adolescents deal with. Uh, if they get saved at a young age, and they're smart enough, hopefully many of them, to, 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 to say they believe in God, they still consider themselves Christians, they never want to cast away their salvation or renounce it. But it's like, well, I want to live a little first. Before I get serious about God, before I really give my life over to this thing, I want to go out and experience some of this other stuff in life. And you've probably heard me say this before. I know the young people have. As long as you are willing to do one more thing before you get serious about God, the devil will supply you with an endless supply of one more things. Praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. We don't want to get to the last week of our life. No matter what the age, and say, I wish I had gotten serious about my walk with Christ sooner. I always meant to do it. And then you realize what's truly important. It's so beautiful to look at Jesus' example heading into the last week of his life, 
and changing practically nothing about he, how he conducts his relationships, his ministry, his prayer, his priorities. He had to, he, he had to rearrange nothing because he lived his life in tune with the Father. He lived his life in total obedience. What a goal to live our lives in service to God and man and do it in such a way that at the end of our lives we don't need to make any adjustments. Just keep praying, keep receiving guidance, and keep obeying God. Stand up with me. I've got a few invitations for you. First and most important, I just talked about, you know, as an example, somebody who is, uh, they're saved, they don't renounce their salvation, but they're just not taking it seriously. Uh, at least that's something. Are you saved? Are you born again? Are you a believer? Have you confessed Jesus Christ as your personal Lord? That's how he becomes your Savior. If you will confess with, the mouth, with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've not made that confession, I'm inviting you. I'm not just inviting you. I'm urging you to make that decision and that confession today. If, as I suspect, everybody in here, certainly most people in here, have made that confession. You don't have any serious doubts about your salvation. But you're looking at this last week of Jesus' life, and you're maybe looking over the last few years of your life. And you might be confident. You've got 50, 60, 70 years left, maybe more. I got time to get it straight. You don't know how much time you have. And every day wasted is a day you don't get back. Is today your day to recommit your life to the one who purchased your life. You were dead in your sin, and God redeemed you through the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. He paid a dear price to save you out of the thing that was killing you, leading you to death. He owns you. If you are saved, technically he owns you. Are you ready to acknowledge that ownership and say, I've been living a redeemed life, I've been, redeemed, I've been living a saved life, but I've been living my life, and my life belongs to you, and I'm ready to acknowledge that again. I'm ready to re-embrace the fact that I'm yours. Do you need to be saved? Do you need to recommit? Or, finally, and or, do you need to be baptized in the Spirit? As we will see we might look at this just briefly. We did a, a series on it not too long ago. But after the resurrection, the next two big things are the ascension and the day of Pentecost. And Jesus, who spent not just this last week, but three years with his disciples, his closest disciples, investing himself into them, ministering alongside them, sending them into ministry, told them, I'm leaving, and I've given you instructions exactly what to do, but don't even try it! Until you receive the promise of the Father. For you will receive power, not when I leave, not when you ask, but when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
When he is on the scene, then you'll be able to do everything I've commanded you to do. You'll be my witnesses, not just here in Jerusalem, but all Israel and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Have you been trying to live a life to please God without the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Have you been filled with the Spirit? Today's your day for that as well. If you desire to be saved, confess Christ. If you desire to publicly or just you can do it from there, but I encourage you to come up here and say, hey, Pastor Scott, pray with me. I'm coming back. I just need to give my life back to God. Or if you decide to be filled with the Spirit, as soon as I'm done praying, don't waste a minute. Come up here. Don't wait till, uh, till they've sung through a verse of this. Come up here and let's get this thing taken care of. Just tell me what you're up here for when you get here, all right? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this beautiful picture, the last week of Jesus' life. Thank you for the challenge it presents. Thank you for the encouragement it presents that we can live a life that is day by day pleasing to you, that is day by day filled with confidence that we are not going to have to make a radical adjustment at the end of our life because you've made yourself available to us. You've made yourself known to us and you will be heard if we will listen. You've revealed yourself in Scripture. And as we commit ourselves to study your word, we can see how we're supposed to be living, how we're supposed to prioritize our days. So help us to walk in a manner that reflects the urgency of the hour in which we're living. And I pray now, Lord, if there's anyone in the sound of my voice who needs to make that decision, that life-changing, life-saving, eternity-altering decision to make you the Lord of their life, that you would convict them and convince them of their need and grant them the wisdom and the boldness and the humility to make that decision today. That you would move in the hearts of believers who you are drawing back to yourself wholeheartedly and that you would create a hunger in the life of every believer who has not known that precious infilling of the Holy Spirit. Lord, change us today. In Jesus' name, amen. And God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.